Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 29. I'll go ahead and read it for us. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a passage uh, about two people, um, King Herod and uh, John the Baptist. But the reason why Mark would focus the narrative uh, mostly on King Herod uh, is because uh, this is a traditional warning passage. It's strongly urging you uh, not to be like Herod. Don't let what happened to Herod uh, happen to you. And it seems like here, uh, John the Baptist is the one who should be receiving the warning and giving us the warning, but actually, uh, it's Herod. He's the one who's suffering the more tragic fate. Why? What happened to Herod? Okay, three things. He suffered from crippling doubt. The really bad kind. The bad kind of doubt. And he sought no way out of it. He did not find a way out of it. He didn't want to. And third, he wasn't willing to pay the price to get out of it. He suffered from crippling doubt. Didn't seek a way out of it. Wasn't willing to pay the price to get out of it. And we'll look at these three one at a time. Okay? Uh, it's, it's really the nature of his doubt, the way out of doubt, and the cost of taking this way out. Okay? So first, what was the nature uh, of Herod's doubt? It's, it's twofold. It's moral and intellectual. Okay? Now Herod, it says here in verse 17, seized John, bound him in prison. Why? Because 
John, by the way, this is not John the disciple, this is John the Baptist. John back then was as common as John today. Um, or John Kim today, unfortunately. It's a really common uh, name. This is talking about John the Baptist. John spoke out against Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife, which, by the way, um, was also his niece. It was his niece. And so you have to understand, not only is this sort of taboo and immoral in our culture today, it was all the more so in the context of this ancient Palestine. Um, the Jewish culture especially would have been very deeply offended by this. But you know what? No one spoke up. No one spoke up against Herod, King Herod, about his sexual immorality. They knew of it. They knew, everyone knew. No one spoke up except for John the Baptist. And to silence him, he was imprisoned. Now, uh, this is one aspect of Herod's uh, doubt. Um, where you see him being very bothered by John the Baptist's moral teaching. Right? It's unlawful for you to marry. And yet he doesn't execute him, he just keeps him in prison. And not only that, it says here, he keeps listening to him. Okay. He keeps listening to him. So his doubt here wasn't just intellectual, it was, more, it was a moral type of complacency. Okay. It's not just that he didn't agree intellectually with the rationale behind Christianity. He didn't like what it makes him do. Or, or forbids him to do. He didn't like the moral obligation that comes with it. Uh, it's like the way Augustine, St. Augustine, um, the early African church father, uh, put in his confessions. If you haven't read the confessions, uh, you, you have to grab it, read it this summer. Classic work you have to read. He said this, But I, wretched, most wretched, in the very commencement of my early youth, had begged chastity of thee, of God, and said, Give me chastity, only not yet. For I feared lest thou should hear me soon, and soon cure me of the disease which I wished to have satisfied rather than extinguished. So, what was his fear during his early days of youth, days of unbelief? That if God cures him, gives him chastity, uh, he would have his disease extinguished. And that means he can no longer satisfy it. He can no longer indulge in his lust. That's what he feared. And that's why he prayed, give me chastity, but not yet. I'm not ready to give it up yet. Okay? It wasn't an intellectual struggle, it was a moral struggle. It was a moral complacency. And that was at the nature of Herod's doubt, his unbelief. And then here's the other aspect to it. Uh, take a look at verse 20. Very interesting verse. Um, For Herod feared John. He recognizes there's something truthful about John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. He heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? You know, why doesn't Herod simply execute John be done with it? Why did Herod keep him alive? He liked listening to John. Okay. He would, I mean, think about it. He would imprison him, but bring him out once in a while. Or clean him up, probably, because he has to come into the palace, clean him up, and have him preach to him. And he would hear him gladly, with joy, with willingness. Okay. And what would John be talking about? 
What would he be talking to Herod about? Movies? I mean, that, that's what I would maybe do, just to like, right, suck up to him and just talk about movies. He's, he would have no doubt preached the gospel, right? the gospel that he's been preaching from Mark chapter 1. Right? Fearlessly preached the gospel. And Herod heard it gladly. Right? This is similar to King Saul. Right? Didn't like David very much, but loved to listen to David, and especially his music. His music and his psalms. Right? It soothed him. It helped him feel better. A part of Herod was identifying that there's something really likable here. There's something really um, true and true and beautiful about what he's talking about. And he sees that John is a righteous and holy man. He agrees with the biblical moral standards. Right? He sees the truthfulness of it. He sees the validity of it. But strangely, right, despite all that, Herod doesn't come to faith. Doesn't come to believe the gospel. And, and then it kind of, this, at this point, it should kind of dawn on you. This is continuation of last week's passage, which was about what? people's unbelief. It was about unbelief. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Remember that? Okay. And here's Herod, right, giving sort of this sort of kingly example, right, prime example of incredible unbelief. He sees that John is righteous. He sees that he's holy. He likes what he's hearing. Doesn't change his heart. Okay. Why? Why? Here's why. He's listening He's listening, but he's not intending on his listening to take him to the next point, deciding. He's listening without the intent of taking the next step, deciding. It might have been possible to think that Herod is at least, you know, listening, and that's a good thing because he has an open mind. But see, there's a problem with that. He's not opening his mind to settle his mind on something. To make up his mind one day, but to leave it constantly open, constantly in a state of openness and doubtfulness. It's intellectual complacency. So there's, there was moral complacency, and now here is the other aspect of his doubt, intellectual complacency. It's a complacency with his own doubt. Right? He would doubt everything except his own doubts. Right? There's nothing wrong with my doubts, I'm going to keep my doubts. I'm going to doubt everything else except my doubts. According to the Bible, there's really nothing inherently wrong about feeling doubts or having doubts. But it is wrong to be complacent about it. Right? You may not be able to choose which doubts you keep and which doubts you don't keep. Right? Doubt may come whether you like it or not. But complacency... You have a say in complacency. You have a say in procrastinating. That's an area where you can decide upon. Well, uh, what should be done about that? And what happened to Herod when he didn't choose, when he didn't decide? And we'll, and we'll talk about this later. Here's this, and this leads us to the second point. What ought to be done? Okay, what is the way out of doubt? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the old English writer, author, he put it like this. Merely having an open mind is nothing. Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Okay. In our culture, we tend to kind of um, praise open-mindedness. Why are you so closed-minded? Be open-minded. 
Well, according to Chesterton, the whole point of having an open mind is to shut it on something, something truthful, something, something you've discovered that's true. And not to leave it perpetually open, permanently open, forever open. Because if you think about it, the irony is, even saying, right, you should always keep your mind open. Should I be open to that idea? Right? The person saying that is close to that idea, close to the idea that you should always be open-minded. Right? We're always going to be closed on something. That's the whole point of having an open mind, of seeking truth. It's like opening your mouth. It's to bite down on something, something nutritious, something good, something that will feed you. I, I tend to encourage, whenever I sit down with you know, seekers or skeptics, and I encourage them, I always encourage them to open their minds. Open their minds, as I will, uh, to the claims of Christianity, to the challenges against Christianity. Investigate them. Raise your doubts. Every skepticism, raise it. But after a while of doing that and exploring, I encourage them to start consider closing in on something. That's what a mind is supposed to do. Start closing in on something. To decide. To decide on something. To choose. You can stack up all the evidence all you want. Which in Christianity's case, I can confidently say that there's plenty but at some point, you're going to find yourself on top of this precipice. And, and you have to decide whether you're going to jump or not. Whether the parachute you've been given is trustworthy or not. At some point, you have to choose. It's like, it's like marrying someone. Right? You can ask yourself all these questions. Right? Is this the right person? Is this, is this going to end up happy? Is this going to work out? You can, you can build all your case. But at the end of the day, it's about you choosing. Right? It's about your choice. And it's only after, it's only after you say, I do, you realize this is the one. Because right? I've, I've decided, I've chosen. Right? Up until then, it's guesswork. It's, it's, it's hypothesis. It's, it's possibly, maybe, very likely. But when you choose and say, I do, then it's fine. Herod was open to listening, investigating, right? Maybe even rationalizing, debating with John, but he was unwilling to decide. Unwilling to decide. And it says here, right, one very great phrase here to summarize this state Herod was in, he was greatly perplexed. Greatly perplexed means, meaning literally puzzled, right? He, he is his own enigma. He is his own confusion. He can't explain why he's the way he is. He's perplexed. He's, he's chosen this perpetual openness. He's in this intellectual limbo. Doubt is not a negative thing. Okay. Let me say that again. Doubt is not a, a negative thing. Leaving doubt alone is. Doubt itself is not a bad thing. Being complacent about doubt is. And that was Herod. That was Herod. And Pascal, the, the French uh, mathematician and philosopher, he had his way of kind of putting this. You heard of Pascal's wager and all that. Uh, the, you should wager, he says. You should wager that God exists and, and live as if he exists. Because one, you have nothing to lose if he doesn't. 
and everything to gain if he does. But secondly, and this is the part of the Pascal's wager most people don't, don't know about, he says this, you don't get to be neutral, right? Consider this, like people think, you know, I'm not going to just, just decide, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to choose at all, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to choose to be an agnostic, I'm not going to choose. You don't get to do that, he says. Why? Because you've already embarked just by being alive. You've embarked. You're headed towards eternity as we speak. Your boat's already left the shore. You're headed somewhere, right now, as we speak. So neutrality, this indecisive, this sort of motionless state, is really an illusion, he says. It's like every form of procrastination. You know, you think you'll perfect it if I just procrastinate. I'll perfect it later. It'll be better if I just push it off to later. But you won't, right? It's, that's the illusion of putting something off. And then some people would hear that and go, you know, that sounds like it's just saying, take a leap of blind faith. No, blind faith, blind faith means you're anti-evidence. And nothing about Christianity is anti-evidence. What this does is, what this means is, at some point, you have to decide what to do with the evidence. What choice will you make with the evidence? That's what faith is. What do we have to do with it? What do Christians have to do with the gospel? You have to trust that it will save you. You have to go beyond agreeing with it, liking hearing it, right? Intellectually agreeing with it, morally agreeing with it, even living according to it. More than that, you have to trust that it will save you. The words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, you have to believe and trust that Jesus and his saving work can indeed save you that's trusting. It's like if you're falling off a cliff, I've heard a pastor put it this way, if you're falling off a cliff and you see a branch, and you, see, you can perceive that it, it's, it's deep enough, it's strong enough to hold you if you were to grab onto it. Intellectually agreeing with that is not faith. Grabbing onto it so you may be saved is faith. And that's what Herod fell short of. He saw it, he understood it, he maybe even agreed with it, just didn't grab onto it. Christian faith, right, it's not throwing the evidence out the window, it's grabbing onto it, living by it, not being complacent. And here's something else that's really, really important about doubt and faith in the Bible. The biblical requirement okay, is not, is not that your faith be flawless, perfect, and doubtless. Okay. It says in Jude 1, verse 22, and this is a letter written to the church, written to Christians, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. It doesn't say if somebody doubts, fix them. If somebody doubts, right? Sit down with them, make sure you, you, you filter everything out. Have mercy on those who doubt. Coexist with them, love them, befriend them, include them. Right? And then it also says, save them, share the gospel with them, encourage them, help them, help them with it, engage them with their doubt. Right? That's enough. That engagement alone, that direction of 
accompanying them on that journey of, of faith and doubt. That, that's sufficient. You don't have to fix them. Just walk with them. Live with them. That's enough. But, see, in every other religion, faith has to be pure. Doubt has to be eradicated. Right? Doubt itself is a sin. Why? Why? Because faith, in every religious, other religious context, faith is a work you perform. Your faith is how you prove the quality of your devotion. And so the more perfect your faith is, the more perfect follower you are. The more faithful you are. And that's important because you're only going to be saved according to the quality of your faith. God looks at the quality of your faith, how well you believe. And that's why you have to perfect your faith. Make sure there are no doubts. Make sure you're not struggling with questions here and there. You're going to be saved according to the quality of your faith. It's like, um, it's sort of like at the end of the movie Matrix, when um, Neo faces Mr. Smith in the subway station. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't pick up the phone early enough to get zapped back into the Matrix, right? And he's left there. And, but instead of running, and Trinity's like seeing him on the, I guess, the green screen with the, Right, Matrix. He's like, she's like, run, Neo, run. But Neo doesn't run, and he what, he, what does he do? He slowly turns towards Mr. Smith, right, as if he's about to challenge him to a, to a fight. And Trinity's like, what is he doing? And Morpheus says, remember what he says? He's beginning to believe. He's beginning to believe. And somehow, because of that belief, he. he ultimately defeats the impossible enemy, right? Mr. Smith overcomes death itself, comes back to life, right? To defeat him. And in that, what you see is a very um, religious view of faith. It's the quality of how well you believe, how well you perform with your belief that dictates whether you'll be victorious or not, whether you get accepted or not, whether you'll be proven genuine or not. It's the quality of your faith. Faith is a work. Work that you perform to save yourself. But that's not at all, not at all the Christian view of faith. Because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith that saves you. It's more like this. You know how, you know how I found out I have a fear of heights? Um, it's when I got on um, acrophobia, ironically, acrophobia, the ride, at Six Flags, it was, uh, you know, some of you were there, you know, graduation, celebration, whatever, a few years ago, we went to Six Flags together, and I went on Acrophobia, it looked fun. First time, it was fun, I thought it was okay, but the second time I got strapped in, I started experiencing kind of these sort of irrational fears. Uh, what if the brake doesn't work? What if, what if the seatbelt mechanism fails and I just get flung out into the sky? Well, what will my wife do with my two kids? You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm having all these irrational thoughts while people around me, right, much younger than me, are cheering, they're excited, they're like, woo, let's go, let's go, number 15, let's go, right? right? They've been on there like a dozen times. And they're 100% sure it's safe, right? 
And I'm there going, there's a 50% chance I'll never see my family again. And everyone else is like, this is, this is perfectly safe. And then the ride goes down. 200 feet, right? 50 miles per hour, 200 feet. That's about like, what, um, 100 stories or something like that? And I'm, and I'm just hanging on to the seatbelt and freaking out. But what happened when we got to the bottom? Right? Did those who doubt get flown out into the sky? Right? And only those who are secure in their belief were safe and sound in their seats? No. Right? Regardless of how confident you were in the safety mechanism, 100%, 50%, 10%, 1%, everyone who got on that ride got saved, right? Why? Because your faith doesn't do the work. The ride does the work. The seatbelt does the work. The machinery does the work. That's how faith in Christianity works. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. Who's holding on to you is what saves you, not how strongly you're holding on to him. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the quality of his grace that saves you, not the quality of your faith. You only need to make him the object of your faith. That's all you, that's all you need to do. And I hope this comforts and encourages those of you who will still experience doubts, perhaps experiencing doubts even today. God has mercy on you. God, God is not telling you, go get that fixed. Right? Get rid of that. I don't have any patience for that. He's saying, simply put whatever faith you have remaining in me, and you're okay. And the church will walk with you through the rest. Talk you through the rest. It is Christ's graciousness, not our doubtlessness, that saves us. He'll keep us from flying out of his grace. When you look at Herod's life, it's really not hard to see why this would have been such a challenge for him. Uh, his entire life was about proving himself, proving himself to others, how good he is, how powerful he is. He had to prove himself to the Romans to keep in his, stay in his position because the Romans would put uh, Herod in, in position to kind of keep, their, keep the Jewish customs, keep, keep the order, and whenever they practice this kind of colonial rule, they would actually, rather than putting a Roman ruler, put a, 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 a local ruler in that place, will help them continue on in their cultural practices, and Herod was the guy. He had to prove himself worthy to the Romans, who, who secures his throne. He had to prove himself to his guests at this wedding. If you look at this passage, right? Why does he ultimately send the executioner to kill John at the, at the request of Herodias' daughter? Because he, feel, he feared her? No. He feared the guests at the wedding. It's not that Herod was a man of his word and because he promised, he had to keep his promise. He was a man of his word when people were watching. That's what he was. He was a people pleaser. He feared them. And fast forward, fast forward a couple of years, he would people please one more, once more, when Jesus is placed before him and send him to Pilate to be crucified. 
And in a way, John's execution is really a foreshadowing of that, a prefiguring of Christ and his crucifixion. Herod's entire life was about proving how good he is, how likable he is, and securing his status, his power, by his own performance. He's a performance-driven king, people-pleasing king. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely antithetical to performance. It's not about our performance at all. It's about Jesus' performance for us. It's not how pure our faith is, how pure he is. And there's something about that that really attracted Herod. That he knows if he would just step into that, it would instantly free him from all the burdens and anxieties of people pleasing, of perfectionism. He couldn't decide. He simply could not decide. And he would just flirt with the preacher. Simply listen to him preach, and listen to him preach, and listen to him preach, but never decide. What should be done with doubt? You have to, you have to see it for what it is. Um, you have to see it for what it is. If you hold on to it and not try to close on it, not try to address it, not try to work with it, it can fester into the doubt that King Herod had. It crippled his relationship with God. Doubt itself isn't, isn't wrong. Complacency about doubt. Is. Think about this, you know, for those of you who are doubting, you know, and I'm really glad you're here. You know, what can you hold on to? What can your mind close on? What decision can you make? And make that decision. It's direction towards God that he wants, not perfection. Let Jesus be the perfect one, not you. God's only asking for direction. Are you heading in the right direction? Are you seeking? Are you asking? Are you answering? Are you closing in? Are you narrowing in? Are you biting down on something solid? Now, later on in the passage, when you get to verse 21, you find Herod does make a decision. He does decide. He decided to close his mind against God. And it led him to put John the Baptist to death. And later... Jesus to death. The gospel was dead to him. That was his decision. And I think that's what Mark implies when he says in verse 21, an opportunity came. An opportunity came. Right? Whenever there's an opportunity, right, there's two ways to go about that. You either get it or you miss it. Right? He missed it. Mark is implying that Herod missed the opportunity. He missed it when he shut the door on the messenger of the gospel, the in-house preacher of the gospel. He cut him off, metaphorically and literally cut him off from his life. And he's going to choose to spend the rest of his life with an open mind. Open towards his lust. Open towards his hedonism. Open towards his people-pleasing. Maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe this is the way of life. Maybe eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die is my philosophy. I should be open to it. Remember, this is a warning passage. Don't miss your opportunity, is what it's saying. God is merciful to those who doubt. But not to those who doubt without seizing 
to the day they die. In that case, like C.S. Lewis said, then the door, door against, door towards God or into God's kingdom is closed from, not, not from God's perspective, not, he's not closing the door from the inside of the kingdom. You're closing it from the outside. You're saying, I don't want to go in. Don't do that. Don't miss your opportunity. Don't take God's kindness for granted, his mercy for granted, and take, take this window of opportunity. You know, if you are here or anywhere hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he alone has the power and the mercy to save you, to forgive you, there's an opportunity. Wherever the gospel is preached, there's an opportunity. Take it. Close in on it. And, and finally, this comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. And it was a cost that Herod wasn't willing to pay. What was the cost? Well, uh, one quick answer to that is look at John the Baptist. What did it cost him? What was, um, what was he grasping onto till his execution? Nothing. Right? Nothing of his own, nothing of this life. Right? He laid it all down. Because he knew that what he did put his trust in was worth holding onto if it meant giving up everything else, including his own life. That was the cost. The cost is knowing the worth of what you're holding onto and being willing to let go of everything else. That's the cost. Did you know that John also had his moment of doubt? In Matthew chapter 11, he sends his disciples while he's in jail to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one? Or are we supposed to wait for another? Are you really the Messiah, the seed of David, the one who's going to come, defeat sin and death, rise again, ascend into heaven and return one day? Is that you? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That sustains John to his martyrdom, to his death. He doesn't recant. He doesn't give Herod his endorsement to save his neck. He preached the truth of the gospel, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the forgiveness of God to the end, even though he cost him his life. Why? Why? Because he was laying it down in exchange for the good news that he believed. Because he believed, if I, if I just have this, if I trust in Jesus, I will see even though I'm blind. I will walk even though I'm lame. I will hear even though I'm deaf. And I will live again even though I die what he believed. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's how you get into the kingdom of God, knowing the worthiness of this treasure given to you and being willing to give up everything that's temporary and earthly for that immeasurably greater treasure. Finding your worth there and not in this temporary existence. John the Baptist's faith in this gospel gave him enough joy to stare death in the face and say what we said on Easter Sunday. Death wears your sting. Death wears your victory. He is risen and he will raise me.
Herod's doubt left him remaining in this fear, the fear of people, the fear of losing his grip on his sin, the fear of losing that thing that he loved most, which was his sin. And Jesus comes with the gospel to free us from that. How? By showing us he is immeasurably more worthy of love. He is worth treasuring. His love is worth loving. And for those of you who behold him, you know, you know that he captivates you with his love. And it's not that he forces you to let go of sin, let go of all these things. You want to. You want to, to make more room for your love, for your love, Lord, and for your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the freedom we get in the gospel, the freedom to let go of the false loves that only leave us fearful, leave us disappointed, leave us dissatisfied, leave us addicted. Why? Because we found a joy and a satisfaction that will not disappoint. And it's something you don't have to work for, something you don't have to perform for. Freely, freely given to you. And the only cost that this really demands was already paid by Jesus on the cross. That's where we find our worth, at the cross. And it makes everything else worth letting go of. Martin Luther in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he, he has this great verse near the end of that hymn that goes like this. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. If you're in this kingdom, if you, re if you really believe that, it's to the extent that you believe that, you can let everything else go. Your goods, your kindred, your doubts, life itself, for the sake of holding on to Christ, your greatest treasure. Hold on to Him. And if you're, if you're feeling like your grip on Him is not tight, I'll invite you at least, at least, close in on Him. Seek Him and close in on Him. Because it's, again, not the quality of your faith that saves you, but the quality of His mercy that saves. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You are patient and gentle and kind towards those of us who doubt. And You know, Lord, You know my doubts. And I thank You that You are merciful with me, You are merciful with all, all of us. Would you encourage us at the same time to draw nearer to you by seeking you in your word, seeking you in, in our prayers, seeking you in worship, as we hold on to your promise that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Help us to let go. Help us to let go of the things that we know are disappointing, we know won't last, we know won't completely satisfy us. And help us to find the God who holds on to us the God who is mighty to save us. Captivate us with his love so that we would hold on to him and have something forever that is good, that is pleasing, that is all satisfying. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.